Hi, and good evening. I'm Yaakov Katz, Senior Fellow at the Jewish People Policy Institute, and I'm joined this evening by Rifka Ravitz, another senior fellow, Rifka, veteran of several Israeli governments and a former uh, chief of staff to Israel's presidents, as well as Shuki Friedman, who is the vice president of JPPI and is joining us today in civilian clothing while he's been spending a lot of the last few weeks in uniform. So we're glad to see Shuki in a blue shirt as opposed to a green shirt today. Uh, we have uh, we do have someone who's going to talk to us with a green shirt. Uh, I did an interview earlier today with Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner, who I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Peter is one of the probably most popular faces today on TV screens around the world. He's literally done hundreds of interviews uh, talking about the war, about Israel's aims, and trying to explain what Israel is doing to an international audience. So we spoke to him less about the operational consequences, because that you can get and understand the story from any news site. But more what I wanted to talk to Peter about is understanding what is the foreign media looking for, how to interact with them, and what are the different challenges that he faces as a spokesperson who's trying to explain Israel's operations, especially, for example, around Shifa Hospital, where everyone is saying, well, you haven't brought the evidence. Okay, so how do you explain that? Uh, after Peter, Rifka and Shuki are here, so we can talk a bit about one of the more interesting stories that's coming out of this war, and that is the Haredi sector in society and in Israel. About 13% of Israelis are ultra-Orthodox. So we're going to talk a bit about that, see what shifts are potentially taking place inside the ultra-Orthodox community, how that is uh, how that is playing out, and whether we should expect any big changes in the aftermath of the conflict or uh, or not. So for now, let's start with uh, Peter Lerner, who's talking to us about the spokesmanship. I guess is a word to an extent of this war. Got it. Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner, spokesperson for the IDF. Thank you very much for coming back to join us at our JPPI webinar. It's great to have you again. Um, I wanted to talk about, again, just do a check-in with you. You've done hundreds of interviews with the foreign media. I saw one that was hard uh, the other day with uh, the British Channel 4, but you're doing CNN, BBC, Sky News, MSNBC, all, all the, all the you know, the alphabet. And what are the big takeaways that you have for now of the experience, like, of what your, your interactions with these journalists has been like? So I would say, first of all, the, um, the the main takeaway is that there is a certain story they need to follow. Uh, human interest will always um, guide their line of questioning. So it will talk about the people, the influence of the people. They will distance themselves always from the bigger picture because that's when people tone out. That's you know, at the end of the day, they are a business and they need to keep people engaged and talking about specific incidents is how they keep people engaged in their media coverage. Right. Um, I do think that there's a general understanding of why we are here. But I think that uh, basically the 7th of October, but I think there's a, a very deep misunderstanding of what war actually looks like. And therefore, they're very quick to judge. They have no patience for process, um, and uh, and they expect immediate answers in, in this day and age of uh, rapid social media, and they're in com competition with social media. Um, so when we look at how we address the, the line of questioning 
how we meet the needs of the the media um the and and the, and the media from our perspective is just you know they're a channel to reach the viewers who need to understand why we are fighting and what we are fighting for i think that there's a a balance there that we can operate within and that's what we're trying to do so uh ladies and gentlemen let me just say one thing about peter who's, who's a good friend but peter is You'll never, you'll, you'll probably never hear his voice go up higher than what he just spoke now, even in those very difficult interviews. So it's very composed, very calm, but getting the point across, which, which I, I, I like. I'm, I'm a follower of the Peter Lerner school of how to interview, as opposed to some other people, mostly politicians in Israel, who do it differently. But, but Peter, you did have a long tweet the other day. Uh, around the whole Shifa hospital situation, right? So Israel, of course, goes into Shifa last week, starts searching for, uh, you know, first evacuates the hospital, starts searching for the Hamas infrastructure that's there, finds some weapons, finds some grenades, finds some cars, finds a tunnel entry, sends a little drone down the tunnel uh, entryway, shows a door, a steel blast door, but like the whole world can't wait. And, and your tweet was patience, people, right? We're working. This is an operation. Not everything is going to be is going to happen immediate. Have some patience. So where did that come from? So I, obviously, I was on the receiving end of all of these tough questions of show us the money, show us the reality, what is actually happening. If you can't show it immediately, then obviously it didn't happen. And they're coming to these conclusions based on the, I would say, the deep misunderstanding of the enemy that we are facing, an enemy that has had 16 years to prepare for it on, on a strategic base and another month to prepare for it on a tactical base. Um, and the expectation to have those immediate answers, um, perhaps even at the expense of us sacrificing soldiers to go and try and engage it immediately, is is the challenge. I've, I've been uh, repeating time and time again that, you know, Patience here is a virtue, and we we need to be very, very cautious, and we understand the need for immediate answers, and we will be re revealing or unveiling the reality stage by stage as we can, under the understanding that we won't jeopardize our forces just for the sake of um, keeping a bridge, yes. keeping up with the news cycle, and that, that I think, is, is the difficulty. Uh, of course, it's important to be able to supply the media with relevant, time-worthy information, and we're constantly in, in the balance of trying to deliver those two. I would say, though, that we've been pretty good. We've been you know, very strategic, very almost every day revealing more information as the operation has advanced. Um, it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't sink through to those that are uh, objected to the operation or the war effort anyway. Uh, but those, I would say, decent people that realize, okay, this is what Hamas has done for hospitals, um, use them as their concept of operations. This is, you know, it doesn't matter. It's not just Chief it's Rantisi, it's yeah. the Al-Quds Hospital, it's the Indonesian Hospital, it's the Qatari Hospital. It's all over. It, it just goes to show that it is, it is systematic yeah. on the side. I think that is the, the challenge of, of reflecting that. When I've Put it forward that way. That there is very little pushback. They realize that it's it's much louder. They might not like the fact that there is an operation taking place in the hospital grounds. I would say we don't like that. This is the battleground. Hamas 
chose this battleground intentionally to use it as their iron dome. That is how they see it. This is their protection because Israel won't strike a hospital. This is precisely, this is why the operations are, I would say, surgical. They were, the operations are very precise. The operations are active against specific locations in the hospital. And it's all happening in a reality where there are still civilians, still patients, still uh, um, civilians that have taken refuge in these locations. That just complicates, obviously, complicates the military operation, but it also complicates the media battle space that people are worried about the babies that need to be evacuated. Um, and then, of course, there's the, the neutral players, the UN bodies that jump in and have something to say about it. They We've been, you know, trying to um, encourage people to leave the hospitals for a month now. And every time the various different UN organizations were saying, no, it's impossible. But what we did in the last two days proved that it actually was possible. So why didn't they do it beforehand? And these are questions, for instance, that, that, that people aren't asking the WHO. The WHO puts out a, a, a message, they interview, and they're criticizing Israel for, their, for the fact that there is an operation in the hospital. They don't mention Hamas. They don't never mention Hamas. And they don't say, yes, uh, uh, we could have done this earlier if we would have tried. Israel would have facilitated it. This is, I think... Uh, the biggest challenges that I find in the in telling the story of hospitals, not that the, the fact that we're operating, but the fact that there is it's it's an ecosystem, uh, not just individual uh, actions. One word just about Shifa, though, that I would say you guys did a big build up, and I think that that also contributed to it. Probably a lot of viewers, and maybe I'll put it in the chat box so people can see. There was the uh, the video, this kind of uh, image, 3D virtual video of what the tunnel network looks like under Shifa. So when people saw that, they expected, oh, the moment you went to Shifa, we're going to see that. And, and that didn't happen. And of course, this will take time. And, you know, if the intelligence is right, some of this will be discovered. But I think that that buildup also contributed to it. But but I, but I do want to um, ask a question. I feel, you know, you and I have spoken about this a lot over the years. I've been I've been critical of the IDF spokesperson's office when I felt that there was criticism that was required. And someone was asking me the other day in an interview what I felt about the performance of of the unit this war. And and I pointed out two different uh, new changes that I feel have have been dramatic and have done a lot for the country and for the continued legitimacy for the operation. Number one is the focus on the international media. For example, you mentioned Rantisi Hospital. After it was discovered, who did Rear Admiral Hagari, the chief spokesperson, which media did he take there? He took CNN. He didn't take Channel 12 or Yediot Ahrono. So the, the priority has been on the international media. And you see that all throughout, right? Every day, the English briefings that he himself is giving is, of course, the hundreds of interviews that you and your colleagues are doing. But but very much there's that's a priority. Number two that I felt is the uh, the quick response, right? If in the past Israel would say, "Well, we're looking into it," and then take as long as it needed, a day, two, right? Nowadays, we're looking into it means we're going to get back to you within under an hour, right? Which is uh, really impressive. Uh, best way, best best example of that was the initial hospital strike. That happened um, in the beginning of the war that everyone blamed Israel for. It turned out it was a missile that had fallen short. And you guys were very quick to, to, to explain that that same evening. I, am, I, am I reading this correctly? Are these two strategic changes that have been taking place? 
Well, I, th I would say from my experience, and I've been around in this field for many, many years, uh, it is operating like a very, very well-oiled machine. Uh, but not only on the uh, international front, uh, but also in the Israeli front, and that's you know just seeing them, the the machine work through its processes, uh, uh, understanding the media arena, uh, that battle space as as a as a battle space that needs to be addressed. Um, I would say there, are, but it's not only the the systematic uh, addressing of the international audience as. Um, as a core audience that needs to be addressed, like you pointed out that Hagari uh, went and took uh, CNN to the Rantisi. It's Neil also, Robertson, I think it was, yeah. Sorry, yeah. And also, it's also um, when we look at how the media has evolved over the last, you know, 10 years, okay? Mm -hmm. um, or even just in the last three years after COVID. Um, so when I had to do an interview in 2019, uh, when I had an interview in 2014, for instance. 2014, during Operation Protective Edge. Operation Protective Edge. So I had to have, there they needed to either be a crew on site mm. or I to go to a studio. And now, like here, I'm doing hundreds of interviews because we can do it through Zoom or other, other platforms that the... Media, so it makes us also much more accessible because I did in 2014. I had a, a three or four CNN or BBC interviews a day, but we weren't necessarily getting to the CBSs, the MBC, NBCs, MSNBC, ABCs. We weren't getting to them. Now it's much more accessible because the the, the media allows us to be uh, more present. Um, so it's also the ability, and that's why there are now four English language spokespersons at the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. Uh, and you have uh, Rear Admiral Hagari, who is the conductor of the, on of the concert and making sure that everybody is in line with what's happening. And access just on, his, on, on, on him for a moment, Peter, I think you know people don't know that, I think it's since Ruthia Rohn, was IDF spokesperson back in the early 2000s. You haven't had a chief spokesperson who has been willing to speak in English, right? And, and his English might not be the British, you know, royal family style of Peter Lerner, but it's uh, it's it's good and it's decent. And, and he is the chief spokesperson, a senior officer, former commander of a elite unit that carries with it a gravitas that's important that should be there. I think he brings... Um... Absolutely, all of those and his experience from the field, um, and and yes, he I think he has become very very well known around the world because of his seriousness to the mission and his ability to convey the messages. Um, where, where where does it also actually also mean, and how long can we go? And 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 the double edged sword of being able to respond quickly is also a challenge because. Sometimes we will be able to have a quick response, like in the Al Ahli um, you know, incident where, where the Palestinian Slavic Jihad fired that rocket that, that misfired and malfunctioned. Uh, but sometimes we won't have answers that quick because there is the fog of war and, and the expectation that I just asked one of, in one of the interviews that I did this week was a question was, well, we obviously think it was you because you haven't provided the evidence. And, I, and, I, and my response was, why do you say that? And he said, well, 
when you had the evidence, you presented them immediately. And that was exactly how I said, but you know, it was two different, it's like apples and oranges. It's two different cases. You can't uh, make an equation like that. There was no ground operation then. The, the battle is ongoing. There's a fog of war. There are soldiers that are injured in the field or killed in the field. And the difference of the ability to give, give an information or a statement on certain incidents is a huge challenge. Uh, we need to be, and I think this is uh, also, it, it's being responsive, uh, being informative, and keeping the media up to date with the developments, but also understanding the realization that, that, that the civilian arena, the impact on the civilians of Gaza is going to be huge, and trying to weigh up those, those two, you know, the, the broader goal of destroying and dismantling Hamas and bringing home the hostages. And how that weighs up with the civilian cost and the toll of um, of war, uh, it's trying to, I would say, level that so that people understand that it is a war and a war that Israel has no choice and has to win. Yeah. Peter, I want to thank you very much for joining us today and uh, for your continued service and, you know, the defending Israel on the front lines of the, or on the front lens of the camera. <laughs> But uh, but just as important. So thank you very much, Peter. Thanks, Jacob. So that was Peter Lerner. I think very you know always interesting to catch up and see what's happening because the media battlefield is obviously just as important as or maybe not just as important, but is very important for the continued legitimacy of Israel's operation. But I want to shift gears for a moment and talk about uh, the ultra orthodox community in Israel and maybe just to set the stage for one second. I want us to quickly just watch this one video. Uh, Rifka gave me the idea that we have to show the video, she told me earlier today. So let me just show uh, this video. I hope you can see it for a second. And it is of this rabbi. His name is Bonim Schreiber. He is the Rosh Yeshiva, the head of a yeshiva called Nativ Hadat in Ashdod. I'm not sure if you can hear. But he's being asked in this video, what should be the, the, the how should the yachas, how should uh, people, their attitude be towards soldiers? And should the they have akarata tov, should they be grateful for what the soldiers are doing? His response is, he says here, well, what should, he thinks for a moment, and then he says, what should the response be to people who uh, collect the garbage and to some extent? Now, this was immediately uh, condemned across the spectrum by so many different people and leaders within the ultra-Orthodox community. There were videos that came out, which I could show you countless ones of uh, other rabbis, including one, the head of one of the yeshivas called the Mir, which is a, a, a one of the flagship yeshivas here in Jerusalem, who was literally bawling, crying when talking about the loss of life of soldiers and how painful this is for the Jewish people. So you see that there's there's the spectrum, right? And you know, you're always going to have people on on all different sides, but clearly there's a tension that still very much exists. And I want to start with you, Rifka. Maybe you could kind of just walk us through this tension that exists between, on the one hand, this pain that people feel towards the soldiers. We've seen so much chesed and, and, and acts of good and deeds and kindness that have been uh, showered on soldiers by members of the ultra-Orthodox community, but there's still, that tension does exist. How, how do you see this? 
Um, so I think, first of all, I don't know that rabbi, and I'm, I don't, I want to say anything about him, but you, you, you know, there's like million uh, members in the Haredi community, and and you just need one, like one idiot one to 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 ruin everything. But what I see is really, as you said, out of Chesed, and also uh, the rabbis that I hear and 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 what what I see in my community, they're also thankful and they honor and. Uh, feel really very grateful uh, for those that uh, lose uh, lives and uh, and um, are very uh, in, in a big danger for us. So that's what I see around of me. Um, of course, there's the there's the big debate of staying in yeshiva, learning Torah, or leaving yeshiva and going to the army. It was a tremendous uh, debate before the war, and it's of course became very uh it spread it out and it it became like the main issue sometimes in some places and some Shabbos uh, tables around uh, the community so it's it's really a big um issue I don't know what would be the end of it but it's like it's it's an open it's an open uh, debate now Chuki you had a tweet earlier today where you opened up with is there a change in the Haredi community and like I guess because you're writing about the Haredi community, you you put on your yeshiva cap for a moment, and of course you had to say yes, but no, also no. So why don't you break down for us what is the yes and what is the no? You mentioned before uh, Robert Schreiber uh, in this clip saying that uh, we shouldn't practically be, be more grateful to the soldiers and, and garbage workers. So on the other hand, I drove today from my Reserve service milim in, in, in Tel Aviv, Kiria, through Nebarak. And in, in a traffic jam, an ultra this guy with a large beard asked me to shut on my window and told me, thank with I was with a uniform. I mean, thank you very much. You're doing a holy thing, you're doing a mitzvah, a religious act when you go into the army and protect us. Wow. In the middle, you, you mentioned Rabbi Finkel from, from Mia Shiva, that uh, in his, his speech his rub to the students there, to the Tamidin, Tamidin Hamim, he said, on one hand, we should be grateful for the soldiers, and we should be very sorry for every single soldier that dead in the, in the fight, and Jews that suffering, with a lot of, lot of empathy. But, but, it's a half an hour uh, speech. I heard all of it. We have our way. And our way is learning Torah. No one should leave the yeshiva. No one should leave the Beit Midrash. No one also should leave the, the learning of Torah and go to the army. Uh-huh. So this is our way to protect Amisraim, to protect the people of Israel. Now, if we go to the wider picture, for many years, there have been a tremendous efforts to make ultra-orthodox, to make Haredim more involved in all circles or duties of the Israeli society. It means recruitment to the army, labor market, and so forth. Unfortunately, talking for, for, for army for sure, but also in other perspective, to the failure only few ultra-Orthodox, only few Haradim, after 20 years of 
public debate and laws and then and courts and whatever, go to the army. Now, do you think that the Haredi, the ultra Orthodox, are changing through the war, or you know, have a different attitude to the state of Israel and to the army? Yes, and we can see there are some polls that demonstrate it. We've done the poll; we'll publish it next week. But there are already a few polls demonstrating that ultra Orthodox feel more close to the state of Israel, more empathy to the state of Israel, to the army. More willingness, willing to 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 support the army, to be part of of the effort. But do they will really go to the army? Do they will really change after the war? I doubt. I really doubt. And I think that the the, the deep stream on the mainstream of ultra society, not the people that recruit themselves two hundred or so people, which which is really a tremendous thing to do. To go to the army and go to the war. 240 people already done it and, and more want to do it. It's terrific. But the majority of ultra Orthodox will keep their way because this is a community uh, demands from them. This is a rabbi's demands from them. And I I I afraid we wouldn't see a major change after the war in the in the more important perspectives. Rivka, you and I were talking a bit earlier today about, obviously there's tension within society, but one of the other tensions that exists also is within families to an extent. I told you, I was telling you about my my extended family. I have nephews who are serving in the army. I have nephews who are ultra-Orthodox and are not in the army. And that, that I, I feel the tension that is there between you know different members of the family. And I, I'm sure that this happens in a lot of other families, what are you seeing, you know, within the, the the community? How are people navigating what must be very complicated because of, you know, there there's there's some anger, justified or not, but it does exist by people who feel that they're serving and others are not. They're putting their lives on the line and others are not. Uh, and, and what has me also just very concerned is the day after all of this, right? That this could lead, because, Let's be honest, it, so, as quickly as we left the division caused by the judicial reform and came, we became united again, right? We're united now. The day after the war, we go back. Uh, unfortunately, I'm afraid, we just go back to the way we once were. So, of course, the big, uh, the biggest question is the day after. And I don't have the answer for that. But I could tell you that there's a big uh, debate in the community and also in families, as you said. I wanna I wanna tell you from my point of view, learning Torah in the yeshiva is really critic, is very, very important. There's a very small amount of, of Jews that devote their lives for Torah. If you have, I don't know, 15 million Jews out around the world, or maybe 18, uh, if you listen to the agency or to the Pew, I don't know, uh million Jews around the world, there's only one hundred and 50 uh, thousands of them that are sitting very seriously learning Torah in the yeshiva. And it's not uh, it's not vacation and it's not anything like that. They are working very hard and they are willing uh, to give up a lot of things. Um, they live in some kind of poverty even for that. So in my point of view, it's really very important. But saying that, uh, I must say that there is, there is 
a big uh, break in debate around these, this issue in families. Because if 10 years ago, you didn't see that. I didn't have nep- nephews in the army uh, 10 years ago or in 2014 or in 2011, like in, in, in wars uh, that I went through, through already. And now I do have nephews and I have a lot of cousins. And and then there's the, the debate, who stays in yeshiva, who goes out, who's the real uh, keeper of the world, uh, what should we do, what, and if even if we don't do, what should we think? What's the right vision? What's the right point of view? What should we teach our children towards to? What should we talk um, on Shabbat table, Shulchan Shabbat, when we have these debates? So I would love you to hear the stories that my husband tells them, even though he he doesn't sit in, in yeshiva and learn, but he he's really very devoted to that idea. Let's just mention for uh, Rivka's husband is the mayor of uh, Kiryat Yarim, one of the suburbs just outside, otherwise known as Telstone, a quite yeah. big ultra-Orthodox uh, town just outside of Jerusalem. Uh, but 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 Rivka, let me just push on that for a moment. The 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 rabbis are not yet changing. And Shuki kind of said that too, right? There's not going to be a dramatic shift. But it could come from the bottom up. We've seen some, I, I, I call them the Haredi celebs, you know, some of these like well-known, you have Aryeh Derry's son, you have a well-known journalist, a couple other of these uh, online well-known public Haredi figures who have drafted now into the IDF since the war began into what's known as Shlav Bet, as like in Hebrew for second stage. It was a very short service, but they're in uniform and they're tweeting about it and they're posting on Instagram and they're, they're it's become a public a publicity campaign almost. Maybe it's maybe the army. I'm sure the army's happy with it. Yeah. But, you know, it also, I mean, I'm sure it gives these people a feeling that they're contributing in a way. Do you think that that will change anything? Young people will start to think a little differently? It could bring a change in some circles of the community. In uh, those circles that would take part in the army, maybe after this war anyway. Mm-hmm. But it won't bring a change in the, in the Mer Yeshiva. And Rabbi Finkel's attitude, it won't bring a change. And I'm not sorry about it because I think we need that small kernel of people that will still stay uh, in yeshiva. So about the change after the war, um, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I'm not sure there'll be a big change. I'm sure there'll be a change. Shuki. But I'm not sure I'm about sorry. which circles will change and and how much would uh, they change. Shuki, the, 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 there is this anger, though, within Israeli society. You know, you talk to secular Israelis and they're upset. They feel they're carrying more of a burden. They feel that they're the ones who are being called up. They feel that they're the ones who are paying more taxes, although we could all, you know, we could debate that because we know, for example, as Rifka told us earlier today, and the numbers showed ultra-Orthodox women are working at the same participation rate as uh, regular Israeli women, and men are already over 50%, so they're a little bit below, but but that's you know high compared to what it was just five, 10 years ago. But the but there is that anger that exists, right? And 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 I I figure that if a new government comes after this war, 
this will be one of the issues that will be tackled, especially if it's a government that doesn't have ultra-Orthodox that are in it, right? Which is hard to imagine, but you never know. If there's a new election and the anger against the current government stays at the level that it is right now, you have Benny Gantz polling at 40 seats, you have Yair Lapid, you got the return of the Naftali Bennett party, Lieberman. I mean, they could make a government based on polling numbers now that do not require any ultra-Orthodox participation. And that might be the opportunity that they're looking for to make dramatic changes, to pass a draft bill that requires every 18-year-old to serve, even if they're ultra-Orthodox, to take away the child allowances and the social benefits and welfare. Would that even make a difference? Would that help? I want to be very sharp on it. I'm very clear and attitude for long years based on a lot of data. First of all, for, for the change. There are two clauses, two vectors working here. One is very, very moderate bottom-up change. No, I'll call it the ultra daughters with Twitter are recruiting to the army. Okay, this is the story. The people that already on the borderline are go to the army. This is very moderate, very slow change. Right. The other vector is the demography. And, and my... Uh, um, Data for long years demonstrate that the demography of the more conservative mainstream ultra orthodox growing faster than the change cure. And therefore, if we do, don't, don't do anything in 35 years or so, the ultra orthodox become third of the Israeli society, third from Jews and not Jews together. It's already 25% in, in Kita Aleph in the first grade. Today, it's right. not a forecast. What happened today? Now, if this community would not dramatically change, join to others carrying the burden, the security burden and the economic burden, which is not less important, and again, with all the respect, the Orthodox women that work and 65% of the non-Orthodox women they work. For the men, it's 57%. And there is clear data from, from the, um, the Ministry of, of Finance demonstrating that tax pays in the society is much lower and so forth. We can't carry it anymore. And we will be able to carry it if you go in the same vectors, of demographic growth and not participating in Israeli burden, I'll call it. And the change should be from top down by the government, by a clear and long-term policy that forcing the old orthodox to change, not identically. I mean, I don't ask the orthodox to, to leave the identity, religious identity, or change their values. But I do ask them to become part of the duties that living in Israel forcing us to carry, which means security, serving the army, learning, changing curriculum of the yeshivot, many of boys through the years, so be capable of earning enough money and working. If we not insist for long term on reducing subsidiaries to the ultra-Orthodox way of life, and by other means forcing them to join the workforce, to join the army, 
and to become part of the Israeli society in all perspectives, it's really that we'll be able to survive. That's a dramatic statement because it's a question of survival. Rivka, uh, it, it just in, <laughs> I'm sure you have what to say in response to that because there's a question, right? Does coercion work? Does policy from the top down, as Shuki is talking about, will that have the effect? And I know that you've done a lot of research into, for example, the the there was that law a few years ago when the when Yair Lapid was in the government that tried to create sanctions even for yeshivas and institutions that didn't meet the draft quotas, right? And there was all question: Do you have sanctions? Do you not have sanctions? Lapid took a stronger position, and still today you have Haredi pop politicians who refuse to even talk to him as a result of remembering what he did to them back then. I remember Yaakov Litzman, the former head of the United Torah Judaism Party, saying to me, I will never, never, ever speak to him, even if he you know, says something to me, I will never talk to him. Um, does coercion work? So um, so I'm familiar with Shuki's um, ideas. Um, I'm a big fan of him, so I read all his articles and, and searches. And... So she can you, reject it and write against them. <laughs> I fine. must tell you that I don't have the answer for this. And it's a big mystery. As I showed you today, I think cohesion doesn't work. And the numbers, I took really a big mass of 10 years and, and tested the numbers and it showed it doesn't work. But let them try. I don't know. Maybe they could try and just... Uh, pass uh, those uh, three or four laws that he's talking about and give it five years and let's see if it works. I don't know. <laughs> it's a big mystery. I don't know either. And, 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 and I just have to say that I, you know, politics in this country, we know dictate everything. And I just, I can't, I'll never forget the uh, Lapid Benny Gantz party that said when they were asked back in one of the early elections of the last few years when we had those five and they said, we'll give them, we'll, I'm going to give Litzman and Derry and whoever these guys are a piece of paper, let them write down what they want. They won't get everything. We'll give them some of it. So that, of course, they also want to sit with the ultra-Orthodox. And the moment that you start to make politics, then those laws, Shuki, will go, will, will potentially go out the window. But, but I must tell you, I must tell you, I saw that paper. He gave them a, 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 an empty paper to write down, and I saw that. And it was nothing um, serious now, nothing that I could <laughs> tell you about. It's a big mystery. No, but, it, but, but it just what it means, I think, is that in the end, everyone will negotiate. We'll see what happens. But that's if they're in the coalition. If they're not in the coalition, then maybe Shuki's ideas have, you know, have a chance. And 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 we see what happens. And I don't know, but but... Um, the bottom line, and, and with this we'll end, is that this is a huge issue that is really going to accompany, and you know, at JPPI, we're doing, just for our viewers and listeners, we do a lot of research on this and, and focus on this issue, and, and also just recognizing how much of an, how much importance and weight this is, excuse me, this is going to take for Israel in, in the years to come, especially in, in the wake of this war, because of what's been happening then this is really something that's becoming all the more important and imperative for the state of Israel. I want to thank uh, Rivka. I want to thank Shuki. Thank Peter. Thank you very much. Thank, thank all of you for joining us. And we'll be back tomorrow for another episode of JPPI's Inside Analysis of the War Against Hamas. Thank you very much and good night.